Hello and welcome to this interview special episode of Tech EU podcast. I am your host, Andrew Degeler. As I said the other week, I am going to use this holiday period to share some of the longer interviews that we have recorded over the past couple of months. And today I want to feature my conversation with Stan Boland, the CEO of the UK-based autonomous driving startup called Five. The company has been around since 2015, and I was really curious to learn more about its recent pivot and also, you know, just get a snapshot of what the industry is like these days and when are we actually going to see those autonomous driving vehicles on our own streets. So let's check this out. Uh, okay, so I'm uh, Stan Boland. I'm the uh, one of the founders and the CEO of 5AI. So we set this company up in 2015. We probably spent the first four years building a high-functioning prototype of a self-driving system. So we've grown the team from initially six of us, we're about 130 people today. And the the demonstration that we put together, you know, we demonstrated in London, which is obviously quite a dense, complex city. And we, we kind of showed the ability that we could perceive the world, um, predict what's going to happen next, plan our motion and control a vehicle across yeah, really quite complex routes. Um, so that's a bit of a thumbnail in terms of what we've been doing so far. And how about yourself? What have, uh, what have you been doing before, uh, before co-founding uh, the company? Because I don't think you, you were ever involved with this particular tech, right? No, that's right. For me, uh, the whole space is, uh, well, it certainly was in 2015 when we set the company up new. My own background has really, for the last sort of 20 years, been founding and running and building semiconductor companies in typically in the communication space. So uh, there's a couple of companies that we built here in Europe that we we grew to be globally significant that I co-founded and led. Uh, one of them we sold to Broadcom, which is doing fixed-line communication chips uh, called Element 14. And the other one we sort of built and sold to NVIDIA, uh, which mm-hmm. is doing mobile communication chips, modem chips in particular, um, that uh, we uh, sold uh, the two of them together for about a billion dollars. Right. And uh, so what brought you to this uh, to this particular niche, this particular industry? Um, firstly, it's probably the most interesting area in tech today is the application of artificial intelligence to solving some kind of real world problems. So it's a kind of yeah, the most fascinating, interesting area. So yeah, it, it, we end up with some difficult problems to solve, but also some yeah, really smart new ideas that can be brought to bear on them. So, so from, from that perspective, it's it's a very very cool space to kind of yeah, yeah, get involved with, and and I think yeah by contrast the semiconductor space is is almost beyond the reach of startup companies these days um, yeah because the it, it's it, these are just enormous businesses that are huge farming operations and, and not really a kind of hunter operation whereas in the world of applying machine learning to a real world problem it, it's a, it's still a kind of pioneering kind of field really where we we don't really know what is going to be the right long-term answer to solving a particular problem, but we can definitely bring a set of technologies and techniques to bear on how we solve it. So, so yeah, it's interesting. And and it's also going to be fundamentally going to change the world of the course of the next 10 years. And that means that, you know, yeah, we can actually work on stuff and the impact of it is going to be colossal, uh, which is always good fun. Right. Do you actually think that... Um Let's say in 10, 15 years, uh, the situation with uh, startups not being able to access 
uh, this uh, industry is going to be similar to what we're seeing right now with semiconductors. So it's going to be like the startups will not be able to get into machine learning space, for example, for uh, self-driving uh, applications. Not really. I think the you know, what's what's actually happening in the industry right now is the, is the development of a whole ecosystem of uh, of companies in this space. Um, and I think because the field is so broad, the the technology that we got to span spans from sensors and classic geometry and yeah, applying deep neural networks to things like object classification and recognition tracking and so on and fusion and prediction and motion planning and uh, control and so on. And and there's many, many layers of kind of software to deliver all that. It's a, it's a very, very large space of complexity. So there may be few people that sit at the top of the tree and take the responsibility for integrating, for verifying the, the system is safe, um, because, I mean, that, that is quite an expensive job. Um, and, but, yeah, it's going to be orchestrating an ecosystem of uh, of suppliers and, and partners that are going to be delivering key pieces, and some of those are going to be horizontal plays, some are going to be kind of vertical vertical plays. So, so I think I think it, it at the very top of the person who's actually going to put the vehicles on the street and take responsibility for them, yeah, that that that, that is going to be yeah a bit more limited, I think. But mm-hmm. the supply base is going to be pretty diverse, I think. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so if we can talk about five, uh, so I have done uh, some reading, but first, like, real quick, why is it uh, why is it called five at all? Ah, oh, right. Okay. Well, that <laughs> that, that was because uh, at the time we set the company up, we, our aspiration was to become a level five uh, SAE level five autonomous system. So yeah, the the um, the, 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 the the basically essentially your f- five levels of autonomy have been defined. The very highest level is a vehicle that can drive anywhere on the planet at any time under any operating conditions. So that's obviously, we're decades away from that. Um, but it's, so it's a kind of aspirational name. Yeah, Realistically, what people are really focused on building today is level three and level four systems. Um, and and yeah, so, so in reality, the technology we're building is really focused on solving those problems. But it's, it's a kind of aspirational name. Right. And so uh, back in March, uh, from what I read uh, in the media, uh, you announced that the company uh, would pivot from building its own fleet, so like your own self-driving cars, to licensing the technology. So what was the reason for that? What uh, what happened back then? Yeah, so just to be clear, I, I don't think we're going to be licensing the software that runs on the vehicle uh, mm-hmm. as much. Um, yeah, so there are two very large bits of software development that are taking place in the autonomous driving space. There's the automated driving system that runs on the vehicle, which is a sort of complicated integration of models and algorithms and processes that have to run in an embedded system uh, running real time based on real data the vehicle's receiving. So so you know that's how we started the company is building such a system but but in order to build that system in order to develop it to find the bugs in it to verify the performance of it against yeah, uh, the the, com- the complex thing that we're going to drop it in called the real world. Yeah, we we have to have a very sophisticated infrastructure um, where we can simulate um, the, you know, things like the driving conditions, the behaviours of other actors in the scene, um, and and that we can drop this you know, vehicle software into this virtual world and find out where it breaks and where it, where it's weak. So mm-hmm. we started off building um, the infrastructure technology as a sort of cloud-based 
um, modular system components that, that would allow us to be quicker um, and to take some of the learning that we generated from building a self-driving system and embed it in that technology. And the, the, so the decision we took in March was we can either continue to build our own um, vehicle software, which is a very expensive, long task, which ultimately um, you know, you know, we, we can certainly see very, very large players in the U.S. putting you know, significant amounts of capital behind that, and and you know, to some extent, um, European auto vendors doing the same. Um, or we can build the infrastructure. And we decided that we, you know, why don't we leverage the infrastructure and offer that as a cloud-based service? So, so it's uh, so it's 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 essentially cloud software that that we're building to to provide an integrated end-to-end development environment and testing environment for people building self-driving systems at any level in, in any market. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And who uh, like uh, who are your customers if you have any examples like who is it for? Well it's it's going it's going to be for two main groups of customers. The first group is is clearly going to be traditional auto. So you know vehicle OEMs um, and their tier one suppliers that are building systems that deliver automated driving functions. Um, so yeah, at the moment, yeah, there's a big focus in in, in the auto space on a, um, a feature which is sometimes known as traffic jam chauffeur um, mm-hmm. is, uh, is also standardized in a UN ECE standard called Alps Automatic Lane Keeping System. And that's really designed for premium cars to switch on this feature and the car will essentially be self-driving and you're not expected as a driver to be in control of the car um, while it's in that mode. So it's the first time we've had a fully automated um, self-driving feature that's going to be available in consumer cars. And so there's a big focus on yeah, figuring out how we can possibly build safe systems and test them and do that with very, very high confidence. Um, so that's uh, that, that's one area that we're very focused on is meeting the needs of customers like that. But there's also a large, a larger, in fact, growing number of like new age vehicle companies that, that don't come from a traditional auto background, but are um, now raising significant amounts of capital to build electric vehicles and in their own way to kind of chase after Tesla as the sort of classic yeah, winner in that space. And yeah, so yeah, there's not many chasing directly after Tesla, but in different markets, that, that is essentially what they're doing. Really. So these are electric vehicle companies funded by you know, private equity, or in some cases, more recently, public equity, um, and, um, and need to build automated technology as part of their story. Um, into the future, uh, just like Tesla have, um, and right. and those are the kind of second market. So, so I think it's going to be both is who we're going to sell to, and we've got customers right now in both. Right. And what stage are you at uh, with the with the product? But well, we've been using it internally for uh, probably in in its different formations, probably a couple of years now, um, mm-hmm. and we are currently uh, demonstrating. A kind of integrated customer-facing version to customers, which we've actually sold to some customers now, and we are about to go live um, over the course of the next few weeks with those customers using that kind of cloud-based technology. So, so yeah, so we, we we've got customers for it, um, and we're about to kind of push it out and and put it put it live for them. Um, so, yeah, right on the brink of it, really. Right. Interesting. So, and uh, you have raised quite a bit of money over the course of uh, the company's existence. Uh, how much was it exactly? Well, equity-wise, um, it's probably 
$62 million or something in terms of total right. equity. Um, and we also managed to get, um, you know, you know, several governments uh, are kind of keen to kind of promote automated driving technology startups in the, the UK is one of those countries. So, so we managed to get the UK government to give us a grant for in total about $15 million on top. And that, that mm-hmm. um, we've used to kind of build our demonstration of, of this capability in, in London streets. Um, but it, but actually the real, the real behavioral exhaust from that, if you like, was the fact that we then knew how to build the infrastructure that we, we knew we would need and therefore we knew other people would need to build this kind of technology. Yeah, that was my next question. So what do you what do you need so much money for if you are not necessarily building uh, consumer-facing hardware? Well, it, it, every aspect of this is complicated. Um, so, so I think uh, we, we firstly, we have our own internal automated driving system stack, which is essentially the prototype that we built for our, our trials. And, and having the expertise inside the company who are actually using the technology in anger gives us enormous advantage in the way that we can design the product for customers, really. So, so yeah, it, it's very, very hard, I think, to build infrastructure without actually knowing the problem yourself. Um, yeah, so I think yeah, we, we're, we're almost unique in having the ability to do both those two things together. And so there is a there is a subset of our team which is continuing to maintain and to develop our runtime system on the vehicle. Um, and and then I think secondly, the system that we're building uh, has got components in it that are enormously rich and complex, and each one of which is a kind of product on its own right, really. So so whether we're talking about um, a sophisticated test oracle that allows us to automatically measure the performance of a system under test against a whole set of predefined rules. And yeah, the, the, the creation of that kind of product in its own right, it's, in some companies, would be the entire company, really. And, but we have, we have maybe you know, six or seven of those that we integrate together as a complete end-to-end system. And one of the things that I think we learned in talking to the auto industry is just how painful it is for auto companies to select and to integrate third-party development tools mm-hmm. together. It's it's almost as complex as building a self-driving system is is doing that. So 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 you know, so the idea that we can deliver a level of integration to people by having more than one module and having it integrated just works out the box it runs in a cloud and it's fully accessible is 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 is, is i think a massive competitive advantage that we're looking to offer and right but, yeah, so so actually we're going to be hiring more people uh, rather than less uh, over the course of the next year so so you know we're certainly expecting uh, as we as we build the products out that um, every single team is going to need to get bigger and we need to ex- kind of expand sideways yeah, that makes sense. Right before we go into the conversation about uh, trials, uh, how far is the company from the unicorn status? So, with, with all the money uh, that uh, you've raised, well, we've probably we, we've not talked at all externally about the kind of valuations. Um, but I, you know, and I think we're, I, th- I think the um, the what would I say about that? Um, yeah, we, we we haven't we haven't raised the round of capital yet, where our valuation is over a billion dollars. If that's a question, um, yeah, uh, will it be at some point in the future? We definitely think it will. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing it. <laughs> but the last the last round that we raised, which we announced earlier this year, actually we announced it in February, was forty one million dollars of of capital. 
and uh, and yeah, I think he like all startup companies, you know, we 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 don't want to give away huge chunks of the company every time we raise a round of funding. So I mean, obviously, the sensitivity of valuation, and everything is something we don't necessarily talk about um, publicly. But uh, but um, we certainly are on that track, and uh, we will, I think, in the future, yeah, some future round of funding, we will clearly be over that kind of threshold. I think. Are you already looking for more money? Not actively. So the amount of money we raised last year is sufficient to allow us to grow the company for some time. Uh, yeah, we, we will definitely have to raise more money at some point. Um, and um, yeah, we'd, we'd like to do that at a point when you know, we can demonstrate yeah, many, many more features of the platform we're building and we've got you know, more customers that are using it in anger. So, so, uh, But we've got the fuel to basically take us from yeah, the the stage right right now into the stage where we we can meet those criteria. So, uh, so 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 we're not actively fundraising, but it's uh, but yeah, we, like all right. startup companies, we're always open to uh, anybody who does want to invest in the company. Yeah. Right, and uh, so yeah, let's talk about the trials that you mentioned. Uh, as far as I understand, this is uh, what was called the Streetwise project, right? So what uh, what was it all about? What what did you do there? We um, we firstly put together a, a team of partners um, that could tackle different parts of a, of a project. The, the basic idea about that behind the project was, yeah, let's demonstrate that um, we can catch up with the Americans, if you like, in building a high functioning um, automated driving demonstration. So the company, our company, started with like six people, you know, a blank sheet of paper, and by the end of the Streetwise project. We had um, eight fully equipped vehicles, each equipped with 26 sensors, each equipped with um, a, a large amount of compute and storage and, and additional battery and so on, and communications technology, and something like you know, 300 terops of compute per car, um, which is like a supercomputer on wheels. And so, we, so we designed yeah, basically eight of those, and, but more importantly, um, we built the entire software stack that took us from taking the raw sensor inputs at one end all the way through to controlling the vehicle at the other. And um, you know, the idea was not to do that in a kind of simple proving ground or in an industrial campus or in a car park or something. It was, you know, can we actually get this to function on complex public roads in a city as, as complex as London? And so we worked with, in fact, one of the consortium partners was Transport for London, which is the traffic authority, the transport authority for the whole region. And they they, they encouraged us to work in two of the London boroughs. So we did a, a demonstration where we did a 20-kilometer drive from one part of London through a loop and then back, um, uh, which was um, which which encompassed you know, overtakes, divided roads, single roads, roundabouts, left-hand turns, right-hand turns, buses, cyclists, motorcyclists, um, pedestrians, horses, I mean, everything basically. And uh, and we managed to show that we could solve you know, all the kind of challenges of things like localization, things like object perception, things like tracking, things like prediction, um, so that we could take people on a safe drive smoothly from one end to the other with very, very few kind of interventions by a safety driver. So all the vehicles had a safety driver on board. And we did the, we completed public trials of that at the end of 2019. So it's probably the most sophisticated automated driving trial in Europe uh, so far has been, mm-hmm. been that. But I, yeah, I would emphasize that everything we've done is prototype. Yeah, so we're not claiming that what we built was production code. And, and in fact, the technology that we're now building 
is designed to allow people to bridge from prototype into production. It's actually a very expensive step to do that. So that's kind of what it was uh, aimed to do. But I'm not really sure I understand what's the what's the problem with uh, like what's the difference in this case? Why why is uh, uh, what you use during the trial? Why is it not good as like an actual production vehicle code, whatever? Oh, because um, well, it, it, there's many many layers of software that sit yeah, is a system layer in this. So we haven't, for example, spent an enormous amount of time absolutely guaranteeing timing dependencies or resource dependencies on that software stack. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah, so, so, yeah, it, it runs on a Linux kernel um, and we've taken a, a robot operating system as the middleware layer. But yeah, I think yeah, we all know that, um, yeah, yeah, that, that, that that's not really designed for the kind of fault criticality that is going to be necessary for a production system. Um, and it, yeah, all companies that are building, the self-driving systems have to yeah, really work hard to provide timing and resource uh, determinacy in terms of their operating system. So, so we, we fixed some of the challenges in a robot operating system to get that to work, but we're not claiming we've solved all those problems really. And yeah, we will still have occasional processes that fail to complete in time or messages that don't arrive in time and so on. So, I mean, not many, not so many as would interfere with a trial dependency, but yeah, certainly not good enough to be a production system. And then when we look at the many components that we built on top, we've not really coded it to auto-grade uh, coding standards and the extent to which we have yeah, achieved yeah, super high precision recall against all the kind of possible edge cases that exist on the planet it is is a very, very large piece of work, really. Um, I think sort of building an automated driving system is a bit like a, an iceberg, really. The bit you see on the top of the, wow, that's amazing, sort of great prototype demo is, is great, uh, except that yeah, underneath is this enormous piece of work has to be done to produce production quality code. It, firstly, we've got to make sure the spec that we're going to test stuff against really is the spec of the real world. So that's a problem of validation, really. So, so yeah, if we've got to detect things like um, different types of street bollards in different types of cities, we'd better go and work out what they are. So we've got to we've got to have a validation exercise to go and data gather and and write appropriate specs for all these things. Because only then can we actually write the tests and be sure that we can verify the system will recognize them as street bollards. Um, so, um, so, so there's a big validation exercise. There's then a, a, a big exercise to, uh, to, to create a, a way of building scenarios into which we can drop this software and then test the performance of the system in those scenarios. And those have to include very realistic object behaviors and, and so on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we, we've got a better sort of, yeah, yeah, do much of this work in simulation because we simply can't create all of this in the real world in order to test the system. So that includes yeah. things like um, simulating uh, weather and lighting conditions, yeah, different yeah, road layouts and cambers and surfaces and reflections. And yeah, there's many, many uh, confounders that, that get in the way of producing a system that is absolutely guaranteed to be safe. And, 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 and obviously the criteria but when you can actually launch a system is not really well defined yet. So, um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, so we, we'd, we'd, we'd certainly want to be able to show that the system we would be producing or a customer now would be producing, you know, you really can demonstrate that this is as safe as a human might be 
in that kind of environment. So, and, and, and right now, the only way to do that is to you know, restrict the operating conditions um, to be you know, somewhat limited. Uh, so you might limit the speed or you might uh, put down um, additional targets in the, in, the, in the scene in order to improve things like localization and so on. So, so there's, there's just a lot of work to do to go from, you know, you know, we, we, we got this like high-functioning thing uh, that, that looks great, and so it shows we can build the algorithms, it shows we can sort of build the system, but it's not the same as we're going to put this on the street, we're going to control two tons of metal, and, we, and we're going to put it in the in you know, next to vulnerable humans. Really, it's a very different problem. Yeah. Well, it still it still sounds very very impressive. I mean, twenty kilometers. I have a very limited uh, experience of uh, driving in London, but I'm not sure I can go twenty kilometers without being uh, honked at or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Actually, yeah. <laughs> right. So, so what was the outcome of this of this project of this trial? What was like the whole uh, sort of idea there? Well, I think I think I think there's the two the well, two out, outturns for us really. I think one is we really learned a lot about um, what it would take to build a safe system, particularly in the field of scenario based testing, um, and how critical it was to work out how we might, for example, have a way of properly capturing the ontology of what we call operational design domains and also the ontology of things like driving rules. And if we're going to build a system and we're going to verify it's safe, we absolutely need to know that we can, for example, detect that we're inside the operational design domain. And if we're not inside the operational design domain, we have to be sure we can reach a minimal risk condition. So, so yeah, so, so it's very important to have a way that we could capture all this stuff in a way that's machine readable and, and also important that we can actually create sufficient scenarios and sufficient coverage of the world. Um, so that, yeah, when we run the testing of the stack against lots of different parameters, yeah, we could generate coverage metrics that, 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 that we can use to build a safety case and at the top level, which is the assertion that the system is safe. Um, so, yeah, so, so the whole process of, yeah, of, of, of what it would really take to go from a prototype to a production system was the, probably the biggest thing we learned in that process, really, and very much informed what we're now doing as a company as a kind of huge service, I think, we're going to be able to offer to uh, people that have the appetite to it, it build, you know, you know, full automated driving systems that are going to be on our streets. Really, um, I think the second thing was that, um, yeah, one of the partners in that um, in that trial was the UK's biggest motor insurer, which is a firm called uh, Direct Line Group. And actually, Direct Line Group decided at the end of the trial they wanted to invest in the company, so they were one of the investors in our most recent funding round, um, having demonstrated what the company was able to do and the understanding we now had as to safety assurance as being the kind of critical missing piece really and the and the tooling for that. That it's obviously important to them as well that they have a way of understanding the safety of these systems if they're going to be underwriting the risk on them. So they also invested in the company and we have a very good partnership with them. And you know, Gus Park, who runs their motor group, is actually on our board now and is a very active contributor to helping us uh, work out what we do. So, so we've got a couple of very, very direct outputs from that is a, a much clearer view about what we should be building and also uh, an investor. And and I think it's uh, probably um, yeah helped us accelerate the speed in which we can win customers um, because the um, yeah, being a, a kind of software tools company that hasn't built something before, 
I, I think it's quite a hard place to be uh, a software tools company that we have people in the company who are grappling with the same problems that um, customers are grappling with it has been enormously helpful. So we, we've done a couple of you know, fairly big projects this year with big um, tier one suppliers. And, and it, it's obvious that our team are able to talk the same language as, as the customers. And uh, that immediately speeds things up, I think. Right, yeah, that's 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 pretty good outcome. Mm. Now, in addition to the trials, I see that you've also done uh, this research study about uh, consumer confidence in autonomous driving. So, what was that about? Can you just uh, quickly walk me through that? Yeah, that, that, that was uh, you know, what, one of the outputs of the trial was also um, you know, given that we've taken like you know, you know, hundreds of people out on this uh, trial. Is so you know, well, what, what what were your expectations of, a, of an automated driving system before you came? Yeah, what was the yeah, experience like? Did you feel safe? Yeah, yeah. What, yeah. Do you think it's the sort of thing you might want to do in the future? And and so we were quite interested to see uh, how quickly customers would, I guess, learn to trust the system, um, and therefore, what was the propensity for consumers to, to to ultimately want to buy a kind of service where we're moving people? So obviously, there's, there's another business of moving packages, um, but in terms of moving people, there's 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 certainly a interesting business on that front, which is really where Waymo and Cruise and Argo and, and so on mm-hmm. are very much focused. Um, and, and actually, the results of that showed that, you know, that after an initial period of time of being in a vehicle, but you know, when, when the vehicle had, had clearly recognized um, different scenarios and had clearly taken cautious and you know, good driving decisions, it, it didn't take long, to be honest, for the passengers in the car to you know, to to learn to trust the system, and and usually halfway through the journey, they'd, they'd be you know, they'd be basically asking more questions about the visualization and about the the overall performance of the system than they would be worrying about the vehicle really. And when we surveyed people at the end, I think it was something like something like ninety six percent of people yeah, felt that the journey they had was safe, and they felt that they could trust the system really, which was incredible really. In some ways, it shows how easy it is to win trust and and how the industry has got to be careful that you know we don't win trust too soon really before the system is really mature really so it it just emphasizes the responsibility i think we've got as an industry to assure right. these systems before they go out there and yeah i think consumers will definitely adopt them um as i think we've seen with tesla you know, on their on their autopilot system i mean you know, you know many many stories of people just quite casually using autopilot for high speed you know highway journeys in the us only to discover that it's really not that safe um um but you know consumers seem quite willing to trust the system if it um if it if it uh, if it seems to behave properly that yeah that's good enough but obviously that's nowhere near good enough for a, a vendor um so um so, which is why, again, we, we need this infrastructure and this tooling to better test these systems properly. Right. I think people just tend to sort of misunderstand the very word autopilot. Even in a plane, autopilot is not something that's going to keep you safe. It's not something that's going to fly you over the weather or other planes, for that matter. So, it's uh, kind right. of uh, not 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 a great idea to expect that from an autopilot, quote unquote, in in a car. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Yeah. So, I think uh, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. 
Now, I can I can also congratulate ourselves. We have uh, spoken for 33 minutes now, I can see, and we have not mentioned uh, the pandemic yet. But I guess now it is it is the time. So, And I know that uh, one of uh, the ideas that uh, uh, you've been having is that uh, the pandemic uh, has helped uh, speed up the acceptance of uh, this technology in general. Why do you think uh, why do you think is that so? Um, well, I think I think I think you've seen actually a, a, a bit of a difference actually in different parts of the world of the impact of the pandemic here. I think what we've seen is in the US actually a, a an, an increased investment in automated driving. So, you know, several large US companies have seen significant uh, fundraisings this year to kind of accelerate their development. Um, yeah, yeah, I have to say a, a lot of that is really in trucking as opposed to robo taxi. Um, um, but yeah, we've seen um, companies like Waymo raise like three billion. Uh, we've seen um, Neuro raise like half a billion. And so I mean, you have fairly big chunks of money going into accelerating. In Europe, I think we've seen a slightly different response. Yeah, mostly because the development that's been taking place in Europe has taken place in traditional auto in the main, and and they got severely hit. I think with the uh, pandemic in terms of uh, vehicle demand and had to close plants and and furlough staff and so on. Um, and and I think there you've seen a, a different strategy play out where they they've actually retracted from kind of high functioning self driving and instead you yeah, focused on um, and and features that go into vehicles that people buy as consumer features. So so mm-hmm. there the focus is very much on level three features like um, traffic jam chauffeur. As, as being where they want to put the bulk of their energy in order to be able to sort of promote the sale of vehicles in the relatively you know, two to four year term, really. Um, so, um, so I think we've seen this sort of diverse, divert, diverse strategy. And, and in the middle of it, um, yeah, I think one area that we think is particularly getting a lot of attention right now is is whether we can devise a way of delivering packages in in last mile without having a final robotic solution for the last 20 meters and uh, and yeah that that is certainly a, an active area that you know we're having fruitful discussions with customers about and trying to make sure that you know our technology can be instrumental to kind of causing those things to happen as well so so that's a, another area that we're actively involved in right now what uh, what kind of technology are we talking about here? Is it uh, is it like that the car, uh, the truck, uh, the van just comes, I don't know, uh, to the end of a motorway and then it's uh, taken over by a like remote operator or an operator in the in the there's, van? There's, there's lots of different models to be honest. Um, yeah, there's um, there's certainly kind of trunking from hub to hub, which is kind of a more of a trucking application. So that yeah, mm-hmm. that is one class of problem. It, it's got particular characteristics that problem. Which is really quite different to urban self-driving, um, yeah, yeah, because yeah, in in high-speed trucking, you know, we care a lot about long distance um, and because we're going at quite high speeds and we have to react in enough time. So we need to get yeah, very high precision recall out to yeah, maybe half a kilometer, maybe even more. Um, so yeah, so that that tends to focus on particular types of technologies. But actually, conversely, the the actual road scene itself. Can be relatively simple. Um, you know, maybe only four or five actors we care about. The road rules are quite straightforward, and, and only a few possible scenarios you might need to test in. So, so it's got some characteristics. Um, yeah, the, the, but the area I think that yeah, which has already been you know, you know well 
addressed, I think, by Waymo and and within Daimler Talk Robotics, and also um, they're also working with Waymo, Too Simple, and uh, here in Europe, Einride, and so on. So, so there's a bunch of companies doing that, and and then I think in terms of the urban delivery capability. I mean, the challenge is the city centres are very, very complex environments um, with many, many actors that could do effectively anything in you know, what can be quite poor localization conditions. It's very hard to know exactly where you are in a city mm-hmm. if you can't see any GPS satellites directly and so on. So um, so, so I think you, know, you need to adopt a whole bunch of different techniques in an urban environment. So so, so we, so, so I think the area that, you know, so you've got trucking, you've got middle mile and you've got last mile. And I think all of them are, are, have got some innovation in them. Yeah, but we're definitely seeing interest to spend more time and effort on package delivery, as as we've seen through COVID. It's been something like in, in different markets, yeah, something like a twenty to thirty five percent increase in package delivery mm-hmm. um, as a result of the pandemic. And most people think that's not going to go away. That yeah, we've seen ten years growth in e commerce in just a single year, um, and yeah, we don't go back to where we were. We actually start from a higher base. Um, and the two biggest markets for that uh, in Europe are uh, uh, Germany and the UK. And that um, both, I think, are going to see continued growth in, in e-commerce. I mean, I mean, this is all, of course, great. But uh, another question then uh, is the regulation, right? So, like, when, uh, when do you think uh, will we see any sort of regulation in Europe uh, that would allow uh, for autonomous driving vehicles on oh, the road? I mean, it's happening now. I mean, the... The first standard that is going to apply in Europe for um, automated driving is a UN ECE standard, which is this ALKS standard. It's the first time that a regulation has been properly drafted, which sets out this specification for how the system is is meant to behave. And so it's a great starting point. It is currently limited to divided highways and to limited maneuvers and to a speed limitation. So, yeah, so they've started with something that is attainable and achievable, um, but it's very clear that what's being created is is a platform that can then be expanded to different operational design domains and eventually cover things like urban autonomy. Mm-hmm. So, so I think it's already happening with the ALKS standard, which is yeah, really why a lot of the auto industry in Europe is really latched onto that and in Japan as well about, you know, okay, let's get these products you know, built and tested and we can use that to build on. Um, so, so I think it's already happening. Right. Okay. I'm sorry, we are way over time. So like last question anyway. So what do you think is the big picture like uh, for the future of self-driving? And uh, like a stupid question, I know, but when do you think are we actually going to see self-driving cars on public roads in the real world and not like in trials? Yeah. Um, it, it, there's no question that yeah we, we're going to move into a world where Transport is automated. I mean, there's, there's absolutely no question that that's the direction of travel. Um, you know, there's just so many reasons why that's a good idea um, that um, it's clearly going to happen. So I, I've got no doubt in 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 ten years' time, um, much of the transportation around us is going to be fully automated. Um, and um, so so in terms of when. Um, I think the um, we already have live trials without a safety driver in the US. Um, 
in um, you know, Waymo has obviously spent more money than anybody else on building the automated driving technology, and their trials are operating in Phoenix um, um, over a relatively limited area and, and limited operating conditions. And obviously, Phoenix is a sunbelt state, so it literally never rains, um, and, and streets are wide open and so on. But but they but but it, we have to start somewhere really, and I think so. So that is already happening in the US. Um, and and I think we'll see other companies um, yeah, already gearing up for uh, driverless services. You know, Cruise certainly, um, uh, Argo. Um, I think even even um, smaller companies like Voyage um, are going to you know, focus on you know, simpler operational design domains like retirement villages as starting points and so on. So so I think you know, you're going to see start from there. Um, it's clearly going to take a bit of time for it to kind of expand into more complex environments. Um, but yeah, that, that is the, 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 the process that we're now going to experience over the next, yeah, yeah certainly over 10 years, we're going to experience that. We, mm-hmm. when, when we'll see them operating in, in, in complex environments, um, in, in European cities, yeah, it's, it's probably somewhere in the middle of that range is probably we'll start to see that happening in, in, 24 maybe or maybe late 23 we'll start to see one or two people actually start to deploy fully automated but i think yeah i think that the from the other angle i think automated driving features in in vehicles that people buy i think we are already seeing right now you know whether it's lane keep assist or it's adaptive cruise control or it's some combination of those features or it's now the emerging out standard and then moving to ultimately uh, you know, uh, urban chauffeur. Um, yeah, I think we're going to see both paths are going to come together, and we'll see both like competing in the sort of twenty-five time frame. I would, I would expect. Right. Okay. Final, final question: How much money does have to be invested into this industry in order to achieve the level five? To achieve the level level, level five, five. Yeah. So, like the, uh, the ultimate goal. <laughs> <laughs> God, I don't know. It may never be attainable. Yeah, the, the idea that we could ever build a self-driving car that could drive in an Indian village in a monsoon in the middle of a religious festival and do that safely. Uh, yeah, we are requiring something close to general intelligence to do that. So, yeah, we may never achieve exactly that. Um, but, you know, wide-scale level four autonomy where it is it is geofenced. Um, there might be some operating conditions in which it simply doesn't work. Yeah, I think we are going to see that progressively over that period of time. So, so I mean, I, I suspect we probably have to wait for something close to general intelligence before we get to a, a true level five system. Um, oh. And so that might be I don't know twenty fifty or something. Um, and uh, and yeah, and it will be a derivative of that. I think is how we're going to get there. So so and still in terms of money, what do you think? How many tens of billions of dollars? Well, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure you would you would actually develop it just for the automated driving application. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, okay, so yeah. yeah, okay. So, so I think I think you know the, the, some of the work that's taking place in things like you know, GPT three and you know, transformer technology and everything is, is probably the the direction of travel that will ultimately lead us to a, you know, a, a fully automated driving capability. Mm-hmm. Where you know, but we need enormous amounts of data. To get to the point where we really could build a system that yeah, approached that, and yeah, what that what that would cost, and when it would be, I, I, uh, it's very hard to predict. If you had to, if you had to sort of guess, you'd say something like twenty fifty or something. Right, right. Yeah. Are you watching that space of like general intelligence and uh, the other? 
a little bit, yeah, a little bit, yeah. But um, but yeah, you know, the, the obviously what we're talking about here is sort of narrow intelligence, really applied to a specific problem. Sure. You know, that the, there are definitely machine learning components in the systems that people are building, uh, but there are also the components that people are most nervous about and the most difficult to verify, and that um, and that um, yeah, that there's also lots of other kind of classical components around them. So it's uh, so it, it really is a kind of integration of technologies that come together to build these automated driving systems and uh, yeah and yeah it, I, I think it, it's definitely academically interesting to look at what's happening in general intelligence and so on but but yeah we, we a we don't have something that's good enough and b we wouldn't know how to verify it uh, if we did um i think it's um i think it is quite some way off i think Right. Understood. Stan, thank you so much uh, once again. Thanks a lot. I'm sorry for uh, taking longer than uh, I right. promised. Thank you. Thank you thank so much for joining. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Thanks a lot. Take care. And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope that you enjoyed it. Please help us spread the word, tell a friend or colleague about the show, and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. If you are listening to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, please do consider going on the app and giving us a review and a star rating. That helps a lot. Music and audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com, check them out. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at podcast at tech.eu. I will be back with another interview special really soon, and in the meantime, have a great time, stay safe, take care, and happy holidays. Bye-bye.